0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message.
1: All right, good morning, Refuge. Uh, it's good to see you guys here. This filled out behind me um, when I, after I sat down. So I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, through the month of August, uh, uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do. This was a great. Uh, I was able to have a sabbatical over the summer, and then uh, to to kind of give the elders who filled in so wonderfully and graciously over the summer uh, before I step back in a little bit of respite uh, was to um, do a sermon series on just questions uh, about Christianity, hard questions for us to deal with, uh, things that maybe we have certain assumptions or presumptions about, ways that we have um, uh, either been culturally divided or, and I, Eric, I thought I thought you were going to say uh, Mac and Android. I'm glad you didn't go anything too uh, divisive there. Um, but uh, and and how we engage in culture? What does Scripture really say versus how have we been divided up? And so every week we've had something new and something different, uh, and um, to challenge the way that we uh, know and understand the mission of, of of God's grace and mercy in this world. So uh, I'm really excited this morning uh, to have uh, Greg Johnson with us. Greg is the pastor of Memorial Presbyterian uh, over off its. He, he, we joked this morning about how he's got a beautiful, beautiful old historic building. Uh, and, uh, but we also joked about how the lights are out in the men's room. So we both have the same, uh, we both, it's the same, different buildings with different junk that you got to deal with. Uh, but uh, right down across from Forest Park is a beautiful building if you, if you haven't ever gone down there. Uh, Greg is a pastor there at Memorial Presbyterian. He's been there for, it's been a while. Wow. Wow. Okay. I didn't, I, so it's a lot longer than I realized. Okay. So he's been at the, at uh, Memorial, uh, since 1994, uh, and, um, now is, uh, the pastor there. Uh, and Greg is going to help us walk through with a, with a beautifully unique and powerful perspective. Uh, this idea for Christianity is like, uh, we, we did put this on Facebook. Um, and, uh, this is a topic we want our kids to to be able to talk about I'm talking about like our children uh, that might be you, you might not be there yet that, that might, that's okay uh, but these are really good conversations that uh, we need to have uh, because they're being had uh, whether whether we are aware of them or not um, and so I am glad that you're here this morning uh, and Greg has a book that's coming out early September right it is I think the 4th Did I read that 14th okay Called, what's that? You can pre-order, you can pre-order now on Amazon. At last week, Carlos, we talked about one day he's going to write a book. Greg's already written one, so we're stepping up. Uh, it's called Still Time to Care. Wardrobe, the coolest
0: watch, the best cocktail parties—all uh, in an effort to to poster over our shame, to address the velvet rage within us, to make ourselves lovable. Um, There's a reason they say a gay man's 40 is a straight man's 27, because we're driven to try to look the youngest we can look, because we want to make ourselves lovable. Most of us um, thought that that feeling of shame came from homophobia, and that's certainly a factor. Um, In the church and outside of the church, it's always been there, Um, you know, when Francis Schaeffer, theologian, apologist, um, with such a significant impact on, on evangelical intellectual life in the 20th century. When he first met uh, Jerry Falwell of the Moral Majority in 1978 or so it was, um, Falwell asked Schaefer, so what do you think about homosexuals? And Schaeffer, being Schaefer, said, well, I think it's a very complicated question and Falwell shot back and said, if I had a dog that did what those people do, I'd shoot it. And there was no humor in his voice. Walking out the door, Francis Schaefer turned to his son, Frankie, and said, that man is disgusting. Even then, you had homophobic Christians and other Christians who were trying to say, no, this is sin, you can't do that. Homophobia has always been real, but the shame runs even deeper. You know, if you look at contexts like Western Europe where uh, where, you know, all, where, where homophobia has been largely erased and, and gay people are celebrated, the suicide rate still hasn't evened up. The shame is still there it's, 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 and it undermines our, our attempts at closeness, it undermines our attempts at intimacy, because when you're trying to make yourself lovable, you're not letting your real self being seen. Um, Downs speculates that gay shame flows from an internal sense of being different that is experienced at a very early age. That's my porcelain tea set. That's my easy bake oven. Um, but Christianity proposes a deeper a deeper explanation that the shame flows from our damage because of the fall and in fact shame is not unique to gay people. It is the universal experience of the human race from the first time you have that nightmare in second grade of showing up at school and you forgot to put clothes on. You know, that's that's that thing. That's the shame Uh, that that Adam and Eve after they fell, they realized they were naked and they felt ashamed. Uh, Shame is different from guilt. Guilt says You did something bad, right there. Shame says you're defective, your person is flawed. Guilt is easy to deal with, shame is so much harder. Um, And it's at this point that Christianity's modern detractors will pounce. Uh, They'll say you're shaming people for something they never chose. They'll point out that kids are committing suicide because your sexual ethic is inherently shaming of queer kids. And where churches are shaming kids because of their sexuality, which is not something they choose, um, there can be a lot of truth in that critique. Some argue that Christianity is to blame, that it's homophobic, that Christianity is intrinsically violent to gay people. Uh, After the 2016 Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter gunned down 49 people in 2016, L.A.L. Cruz of Faith in America penned an editorial which expressed the feelings that many, many people had uh, when they heard conservative religious leaders expressing sorrow over the massacre. He wrote this. When those who heavily influence our policies and culture espouse the very rhetoric that causes LGBT people violence, they must be held accountable. They cannot encourage this traditional theology and wash their hands of the harmful and even deadly effects. It's a powerful argument coming from deeply felt emotion and much pain, and it raises a question that we have to face as the church. Is the biblical sexual ethic inherently violent to people like me? And frankly, Christians have done much to make that accusation stick. I have heard so many stories researching this book of people growing up feeling repressed, feeling like they had to hide, feeling that that, that they were disgusting and that people were disgusted by them, self-loathing, this expectation that if they were growing in Christ, they'd become heterosexual. I've heard stories of youth being cast out by their family or rejected uh, by their church on account of their sexual orientation. Um, One of the leaders at at Revoice, which is a ministry for celibate, um, gay and same-sex attracted Christians, uh, Becca Mason, uh, asked her gay friends, her Christian gay friends, what was your experience growing up in church? What do you wish church leaders had said or done? One 19-year-old answered, I didn't, feel like, I didn't feel safe being out at church, only at school. Another respondent said, I felt like I was one step up from a leper, someone to be pitied, but not someone you wanted to sit next to. Another replied, I wish leaders talked about LGBT people in a positive way. The comments continued, does God know about me? Does he love me? Another said, it was terrifying for me to grow up in a church. I'm still in the closet, one said, because I'm not sure my church is equipped to deal with me. Another said, I knew I could never talk to any church leader or family member. Another said, I wished someone would acknowledge it's real. It's not in my head. Another said, I wanted someone to take time to know me as a unique individual and not as a project. Another said, I wanted someone to say God loves me. I wished my pastor had said it. Yet another respondent commented, I wish they would create an aroma of acceptance before I come out. Mason explains there is a wake of trauma with every non-straight believer. Now notice what none of these respondents were asking for. None of them were saying, I want you to change the biblical sexual ethic. These respondents were just wanting to be acknowledged and loved and treated rightly. Um, There's such a history, there's such a legacy for why people think Christians hate gay people and that Christianity is homophobic. We have the legacy of the ex-gay movement, which for 40 years, put people like me through conversion therapy in the attempt to change our sexual orientation, only to find out after 40 years, the president of Exodus announced that 99.9% of the ministry's clients had never seen any change in their sexual orientation. It, it failed. And yet, the language of that movement is still being pressed. Like I know if I say in a conservative Christian place, I say that I am gay, they will immediately assume I'm not a Christian, or I'm not really walking with God, or or. But if I say I'm same-sex attracted, they'll say, Oh, well, he's one of ours. Because that's the language the conversion therapists developed. And so long as you play that game, you can find acceptance in conservative religious spaces. Uh, one study of college students found in general that gay students were twice as likely to have had recent thoughts of suicide. But what was interesting is for for students that were for straight students who had a strong religious faith their suicidality dropped significantly religious faith. For gay students who had a strong religious faith, their suicide rate went up by 38%. Uh, so there's history here. It's a complicated question, a complicated answer that doesn't simply have a yes or a no. Um, now, I will say that gay shame predates Christianity by, by a long shot, both personally and historically. I grew up atheist i i i was i was full of velvet rage before i ever picked up a bible but even before that you know um, uh, in the first century a.d the roman fabulist phaedrus a a fabulist it sounds fabulous but it's actually a a fable writer uh the roman (laughs) the roman fabulist phaedrus uh, uh um described how how um Prometheus, the mythological figure Prometheus, had one day been fashioning male and female genitalia when he got called away to a a cocktail party, dinner party with friends. And he went and had dinner with friends, and he drank way too much of the Kool-Aid, and he came home, and he was pretty smashed. He was stumbling all over the place, but he wanted to get his work done, and he accidentally slapped some male genitalia onto some females, and some female onto some some males and it It got all mixed up and it was an honest mistake but for the children of prometheus's blunder they would live life confused ashamed on the margins of society and disgraced that's 2000 years ago um christianity though is unique in one area see Humans have always believed that those people over there are shameful. Christianity doesn't give straight people an out. Christianity says we're all shameful. Christianity says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are desperately in need of a savior. Christianity is the only organization on earth whose first membership requirement is that you have to promise that you're a failure and a sinner in need of a savior. You know, that's a pretty safe place to be, all things considered, at least on paper. Um, you know, it's, it's and, and heterosexuality this side of the fall is really jacked up. I mean, do you think God designed Adam to be attracted to every woman? Like, that's how, you, you're, your sexual longings men, straight men, uh, are bent by their polygamy. C.S. Lewis, um, when C.S. Lewis's uh, best friend Arthur came out to him as gay in 1918, um, C.S. Lewis felt like he could not claim any moral high ground because, and they remained best friends there, you can buy uh, or get at a library the 600 page volume of just C.S. Lewis's uh, letters to his gay best friend Arthur. But when he came out to Arthur, uh, he couldn't claim any moral high ground because uh, Lewis's own struggle um, was with um, sadomasochism, which um, that just means uh, 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 bringing pain into something that should not have pain in it. And uh, he had signed, um, you know, he had signed letters to to Arthur uh, Philomastics, which means whip lover. And so he realized he had this, his own sexuality was so deeply warped and distorted. And yes, I'm talking about C.S. Lewis. Don't whitewash C.S. Lewis. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need a savior in Jesus. Shame is powerful and all the straight people I know are bent. If you are post-adolescence, you have a sexuality that is also warped and bent and shaped by the fall that will lead you to feel things for people that God has not given you. Shame is powerful, but it's also universal. Even when we throw off the confines of traditional morality and declare, there's nothing wrong with my sexuality, the shame is still there. You know it's still there because I'm still trying to make myself lovable. I still have to be successful enough. I still have to be beautiful enough. I still have to be young looking enough. I still have to be funny enough. I still have to be interesting enough to make myself lovable. And that tells me that you can remove the shame from your sexual ethic. You will never be able to remove it from your soul. Only Jesus can remove it from your soul. It's at this point that Jesus speaks into gay shame and shame generally in a very intuitive way because religion's answer is to hide your shame. Uh, For someone like me, pretend to be straight get married, have kids, um, fake it till I make it, though I'll never make it. Um, those marriages had a 70% divorce rate. Um, the, the world is just, deny your shame. Uh, if religion says, hide your shame, the world says, deny it. There's nothing shameful with me. It's, and yet what Christianity does is something that's so very, very different. Because my shame tells me I need to make myself lovable, but Jesus Christ tells me I don't need to become lovable, I need to be loved, loved by God, and loved by His church. Uh, you know, my own conversion to Christ, um, you know it happened in college, um, and I remember the gospel when I first heard the gospel. Um, nobody had to convince me that there was something wrong with my sexuality that, that I had always known. I, I, I mean I, even before I was a Christian, I knew this was something about me that was off. I didn't know if it was the wiring or what, but um, I understood how reproduction is designed to work between you know, a, a, a male and a female, and, and I knew that that was never going to happen with me. Um, but when I heard about Jesus, the thought that Jesus actually only came to save sinners, sinners were the only class of people that Jesus came to save, that he actually favors sinful people, that he was never called a friend of the righteous, he was called a friend of of sinners. And for me, knowing the way that the fall had bent me, um, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. I was filled with so much joy. I mean, I was the guy who saw a field with buried treasure and I sold everything I had and I bought the field and 30 years later, I am so happy with my field because that treasure is Jesus and he is the one man who will never reject me and never kick me out. This point, uh, uh, I can say that um, Christianity has had a cost for me because I do still hold to the, the traditional understanding of the biblical sexual ethic And that, for me, has meant celibacy. That means I'm a 48-year-old virgin who's never so much as held hands. I kissed a girl once before I was a Christian in high school and I didn't like it. (laughs) And so that means some loneliness. And that means I have to rely on my church family to be my family Um, in in a very real sense because my biological family is not all Christians and, and I can't have... A physical family of my own, but what I can have is the body of Jesus being the people who know when my plane is landing, who notice when I don't show up, and who know when I need to be checked in on, because they know me and they love me, and they've been doing that for years. One, one my best friend, uh, is one of our deacons, he's come over for cocktails every Thursday night for 15 years. I've had coffee with the same elder uh, every, every Thursday morning since 2002, so that's almost 20 years. Um, one family has had me in their home hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, and yet, what I look, when I look at the LGBT community, what I see is a longing to be free from toxic shame. I see a longing for acceptance. I see a longing for love, a longing to be able to be honest, to not have to fake it, the, a longing to be able to take my mask off and be seen as I am, a longing to be embraced. Uh, I know of no other community that longs more deeply for what can only ultimately be found in the gospel of Jesus. Um, I'm going to read a passage. I did promise you will get a sermon in this. It's just in the last quarter. So, uh, because here's what I find in Jesus. It's it's Philippians 3. I'm just going to read verses 8 through 11, where Paul talks about all that he left behind in order to have Jesus. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I will attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes in Romans, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. What I see in the good news of Jesus, in the gospel, I see a God who clothes my shame in the righteousness of his son. That's, That's huge. That's more than forgiveness. You know, he says to be clothed with a righteousness that is not my own, not that comes from the law, but that is through faith in Christ. You know, because forgiveness alone can't address my need to become lovable. Uh, There's a difference between forgiveness and and righteousness, because the Bible says that, yeah, our sins are forgiven, but we're also clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Let me explain what that difference looks like. Imagine, if you will, that I have defaulted on my mortgage, and I have three loans that have all come due, and my bank account is overdrawn by $10,000, and everything I own has been hocked, repossessed. I have nothing. And then I've got all these credit cards, and they're all up to the limit. And then on top of that, I got all these fees. And, and so I go into Bank of America, and, uh, and I go up to the person at the desk, and they point me over to a little cubicle, and I go and sit down in my little cubicle, and, and the gentleman across from me pulls up my account, and he says, well, Mr. Johnson, Reverend Johnson, you've made rather a mess of this. <laughs> and I'm... <laughs> but what we're going to do here at Bank of America, Bank of America is, is we're just going to... Um, cancel all these loans, and wipe out all these fees, and just fix your mortgage, and just zero everything out, and call it a wash. And you think, that's pretty good service for Bank of America. (laughs) Um, But as you're walking out the door toward your car, there are two things that are also true of you. One, you are absolutely bankrupt. And two, Bank of America doesn't ever want to see your face again. And some of you, now, 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 have you been forgiven? Oh, you've been forgiven a huge debt. But some of you are stuck there because you only think you're forgiven and you don't know the other half because the other half is righteousness. Righteousness is when you're most of the way to your car and the CEO of Bank of America comes rushing out toward you saying, Sir, sir, please, Reverend Johnson, Dr. Johnson, please, come in, come in. He, does, he was new here. He didn't know what he was doing. He made a mistake. And so the CEO takes you upstairs. You go through this like mahogany paneled you know a, a, a elevator with an elevator guy in a cage and you go up to the top of this tower and you're walking down these hallways with all the the old dead CEOs and presidents of the organization lining the wall and at the end you go through these double doors past the executive watch suite into this corner office with a mahogany desk and bookcases and a, a view out over the city and 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 she takes you over and she sits you down in the chair behind her desk. And she says, uh, and there's this big stack of papers and a lawyer walks in the room and she says, I am so, so sorry you were treated like that. Uh, We at Bank of America are gonna make this right, so I am just going to sign over the bank and all its assets to you right now if you'll initial these forms. And then if you don't mind, we do have an artist down in the lobby with some uh, oil paints and a canvas. We need to capture your likeness for the boardroom that is righteousness (laughs) forgiveness is you can go now righteousness says you can come and to be clothed in the righteousness of jesus creates an emotionally and spiritually safe place where i can be a big shameful sinner loved by jesus with a ticker tape parade and and congressional medal of honor and access to the halls of power that's the gospel That's Christianity. That's good news for gay people who want to follow Jesus. Because that means gay people don't have to travel coach while y'all are up in first class. We're all in first class. (laughs) A reformation slogan was simul justus et peccator, simultaneously sinners and righteous before God. Oh, a God who closes with his eyes, who sees you all the way down and still wants to be in relationship with you, who makes church a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus, Jesus who loves to throw open the doors of his house on Sunday morning and bid the bruised and the broken and the marginalized to come in and find rest. You know, and there have been Christians through the ages who got it. Um... Billy Graham, in 1964, there was a a big gay sex scandal uh, in Washington, D.C. Lyndon, it was four weeks before the 1964 presidential election, and Lyndon Johnson's top aide, a guy named Walter Jenkins, had been busted doing something he shouldn't do in a YMCA men's room. And uh, the press at first hushed it up, but then they found out five years earlier he had done the same thing in the same location. And, uh, and so, um, it became this massive explosion over Washington. It was in the national media, um, you know, um, uh, 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 his opponent, the Republican opponent, Barry Goldwater, had, um, had bumper stickers printed that said, all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. Um, and Jenkins, of course, immediately resigned. And, uh, and he was married, Catholic guy, had kids. Um, and a uh, couple days into the scandal, the phone rang at the White House and it was Billy Graham. Billy Graham had called up and asked to speak with Lyndon Johnson. Billy Graham is the pastor to the presidents. And President Johnson took the call and Billy Graham chatted for a minute. And then he said, the reason I'm calling is I want to talk about Walter Jenkins. And he explained that I, too, know what it's like to be a sinner. And he's no different than any of the rest of us. And when Jesus dealt with sinners like us, he dealt very tenderly and very graciously. This is the pastor to the presidents using what leverage he has in life to come to the defense of a gay man who had fallen badly and whose fall was threatening the president's reelection chances. That is Christians using their leverage to come to the defense of someone who is as marginalized as you could have gotten in 1964. Um, John Stott, who um, we don't know for sure what his sexual orientation was. There are people very close to him who said that he was almost definitely gay. Uh, He was celibate his entire life. Um, But, uh, you know, he said this. he said, at the heart of the human community.
1: not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of
0: the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.